the understanding of how American freedom was lost in and through the executive branch falls within three main categories. One, treaty powers, two, executive orders, and three, government by national emergency. Now, the first two of these have been greatly leveraged by the abuse of the third, and we'll talk about that in more detail. A constitutionally valid signed international treaty can have the same force domestically as the U.S. Constitution or statute law. And this issue has not been settled legally, and if a controversial enough treaty were passed, it would undoubtedly create a constitutional crisis. Meanwhile, the ease of passing a treaty is efficient for government's sake, but leaves the liberty of the people vulnerable. Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution gives the President, quote, power by and with the advice and consent of the Senate to make treaties, provided two-thirds of the senators present concur. The President has a full monopoly on the actual negotiation of the details of treaties. According to the Supreme Court Justice Sutherland in the United States versus uh, Curtis Wright Export Corporation in 1936, quote, he alone negotiates into the field of negotiation the Senate cannot intrude, and Congress itself is powerless to invade it. The requirement of a two-thirds vote of the Senator's president refer present refers only to a quorum of the Senate, as per Supreme Court decision as well. A quorum requires only 51 Senators officially, but the Senate's own website indicates that even a smaller number can constitute a quorum if only a voice vote is taken. It says, quote, the Senate presumes that a quorum is present unless the contrary is shown by a roll call vote or quorum call. This means that a treaty can become the law of the land with as few as 34 senators voting in agreement. Taken together, all of these legal requirements indicate that an activist president could sign a radical treaty and have it pass the Senate quickly if the conditions were right. He would need the support of only a loyal minority dedicated to the agenda in the Senate. This potential executive abuse was debated very little during the convention. When it was debated, the main tension arose over the need for secrecy in treaty making versus the need to reserve legislative power to Congress only. James Wilson suggested that since treaties will operate like laws, quote, they ought to have the sanction of laws also. Roger Sherman responded warning whether the power could be safely trusted to the Senate which at the time was designed to be a voice of the states only, not the people at large. Opposition did arise. One delegate, George Mason, expressed himself in some personal notes to his draft copy of the Constitution. These later became a pamphlet that was circulated during the ratification period, and he bemoaned the exclusion of the people in Congress from the treaty-making power and the need for distinctions, as he said it, in treaties. Quote, by declaring all treaties supreme laws of the land, the executive and Senate have in many cases an exclusive power of legislation, which might have been avoided by proper distinctions with respect to treaties and requiring this, the assent of the House of Representatives where it could be done with safety. James Iredell, who was a leading nationalist in North Carolina, later U.S. Supreme Court Justice, responded to Mason in print his rebuttal was to reemphasize the secrecy needed for treaties by questioning the safety of trusting Congress. The new system, he assured, will be better because it will have the additional check of, quote, a president with high personal character. In other words, 
just trust us, we're really good people. Mason's point of making distinctions in treaties was echoed by others. The federal farmer elucidated on the distinctions between treaties of alliance and peace and commerce, the latter of which does not require secrecy like others. Such treaties of commerce, he said, almost always invoke in them legislative powers, interfere with the laws and internal police of the country, and operate immediately on persons and property. And yet he thought that the constitutional power of the legislator to regulate commerce with foreign nations was enough to give it, as he put it, proper control over the President and Senate in settling commercial treaties. The most interesting exchange took place between James Madison and Patrick Henry during the ratification debates in Virginia. Henry decried the treaty powers as excessive and dangerous. Quote, consider the condition this country would be in if two-thirds of a quorum should be empowered to make a treaty. They might relinquish and alienate territorial rights and our most valuable commercial advantages. In short, if anything should be left to us, it would be because the President and Senators were pleased to admit it. The power of making treaties by this Constitution, ill-guarded as it is, extended further than it did in any country in the world. Treaties were to have more force here than in any part of Christendom for he defied any gentleman to show anything so extensive in any strong, energetic government in Europe. Treaties rest, says he, on the laws and usages of nations. To say that they are municipal is, to me, a doctrine totally novel. To make them paramount to the Constitution and laws of the states is unprecedented. Madison countered by arguing that the proposed Constitution was not unprecedented among world powers in this regard, for the King of Britain himself had similar power. Henry rebutted that the English system was actually more limited than the proposed American Constitution. In regard to treaties, he said, we should be so lucky as only to have such a king. As it stood, the constitutions of these states may be most flagrantly violated without remedy. I say again that if you consent to this power, you depend on the justice and equity of those in power. We may be told that we shall find ample refuge in the laws of nations. When you yourselves have your necks so low that the President may dispose of your rights as he pleases, the law of nations cannot be applied to relieve you. Sure I am, if treaties are, are made infringing our liberty, liberties, it will be too late to say that our constitutional rights are violated. A treaty may be made giving away your rights and inflicting unusual punishments on its violators. The main federal salvo against such an abuse would be the hope that the Senate would not be able to ratify the treaty. Otherwise, the whole of Congress could later essentially repeal a treaty by passing new legislation to override the unwanted effects. But the Supreme Court has warned that this could constitute an infraction of international law and would thus be possible grounds for war. It wrote, its infraction becomes the subject of international negotiations and reclamations so far as the injured party chooses to seek redress, which may in the end be enforced by actual war. It is obvious that while all this, the judicial courts have nothing to do and can give no redress. The number of treaties to which Americans have been bound through this executive power are actually legion. There are so many that no comprehensive publication of the text of all current binding treaties has ever been attempted. The State Department does publish a volume merely listing all the treaties and international agreements in force as of 2011. Merely listing them by name and date organized by country fills a volume of 484 pages. 
Now, of course, all these aren't necessarily invasive, intrusive, or necessarily bad, but the sheer volume of binding agreements in which we have little, if any, voice should be alarming in itself. The sheer volume greatly increases the risk, if nothing else, that some abuses and intrusions will occur, and indeed, they have been attempted. Here are a couple of recent examples. First, consider the United Nations plan of global disarmament, the goal which would impose strict gun control measures upon its members, including the rightfully gun-loving U.S. There are at least two public efforts aimed at essentially circumventing the U.S. Second Amendment. There's a treaty to regulate small arms trade between nations and a more comprehensive international small arms control standards project called ISAACS. The first seems less innocuous, though we're unsure what exactly it would contain. The UN assures us it's merely to help fight terrorism in rogue states, but several conservative critics see that even that mild-sounding objective can have drastic consequences for gun registration, licensing, even outright international gun control laws. In reality, it's probably related directly to this second effort. The main UN attempt seems focused on the finalization of ISAACS, a detailed outline for international small arms policy and implementation. ISAACS is a product of the United Nations Coordinating Action on Small Arms, CASA. The latest draft of this document calls not only for regulation of international trade, but for national controls over the access of civilians to small arms and light weapons national controls over the manufacture of small arms and light weapons, and eventually collection, stockpile management, and destruction of weapons and ammo. It's clear that the agenda here aims far beyond the control of AK-47s to terrorists. Indeed, the Program of Action for the UN's Implementation Support System uh, website exhibits all of these goals in considerable detail, explicitly states that such new laws and regulations shall apply, quote, within the state's jurisdiction. The Obama administration, in particular, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, signaled already in 2009 that they were ready to begin negotiations with the UN on such a treaty. If they succeed, they will have essentially accomplished what the anti-federalists and Patrick Henry warned of, and that is the use of treaty powers to trash U.S. liberties. Indeed, this will have occurred in the worst form, the trashing of a clear constitutional amendment. It would certainly uh, create a constitutional crisis, which we assume the Supreme Court would likely, though not definitely, strike down. Fifty senators have already signed a letter to Clinton saying they will not vote for any treaty which infringes on civilian arms, but remember, it only takes at least 34 if conditions are right. So those opposed must actively resist, stay vigilant, uh, lest we be taken unaware. The second example of the danger of treaty powers is the much more ambitious but ceaseless attempt for international governance. Now this appears in such forms as the United Nations Convention on Biological Diversity and its sister development called Agenda 21 which could be imposed in the U.S. via a treaty. While you may not have heard of either of these specific U.N. programs, probably not have heard of any serious attempts to impose international government on the U.S. in general, at least not unaccompanied by talk of conspiracies and tinfoil hats, such attempts sadly have been very real. 
One nearly succeeded were it not for the last-minute efforts of four investigators providing crucially uncirculated information to a handful of senators. In 1992, the United Nations Earth Summit was held in Rio de Janeiro. Out of this came a book-length document titled Agenda 21, popularizing the slogan, Sustainable Development. Basically, every time you hear the word unsustainable, or sustainable used in public, it's a byproduct of this meeting and agenda. According to the online version of the document, Agenda 21, quote, is a comprehensive plan of action to be taken globally, nationally, and locally by organizations of the United Nations system, governments, and major groups in every area in which humans impact on the environment. What follows is nearly 300 pages of double column, fine print, providing guidelines for global uh, treaties controlling every area of life. Everything from all of science, business, and industry, down to the very air that we breathe and the water we drink, and calling for an international revenue source that is a global tax and the mechanisms are required to pay for it. The preliminary estimate was roughly $600 billion, keep in mind this is 1992, and that was just for helping developing countries, which effectively means a transfer of that portion of wealth from developed nations to third world partners. It was all couched in terms of saving the environment and providing laws to promote sustainable living. Well, the liberal establishment in the United States drooled over the plan. Only months after the Rio Summit, uh, Bill Clinton was sworn into office. Again, we're talking 92 here. Democrats already controlled the Senate, uh, but they did, grant, thankfully, still have to work with some, walk with some circumspect to, to a great degree. Clinton spent precious political capital early on pushing his universal health care plan, which failed, NAFTA, the Brady Bill, and also the Whitewater Affair. Uh, but he, he did sign the Biodiversity Treaty in June of 1993. Over the following months, Al Gore and a coalition of environmental groups planned this strategy for ramming the treaty through the Senate. Well, when it finally reached the Senate in uh, November, the State Department requested that it be put on a fast track. The treaty was reviewed in the Foreign Relations Committee until June of the following year and then approved it for votes. Grassroots knowledge was only beginning to mount some kind of opposition to this plan, of which most senators and other congressmen largely oblivious. Well, very quickly, Majority Leader George Mitchell, who was Democrat from Maine, announced that on an August 3rd, the treaty was going to be set for vote on August 8th, only five days later. These grassroots guys went into overdrive. They leveraged the system of fax machines they had, trying to get the senator's attention, senator's attention, senators, senators, not too far off. The effort paid off. Uh, a letter from 35 Republicans landed on Mitchell's desk. He ha had to rescind the hasty plans for the vote and delayed it created a, a little bit more room for widespread awareness to solidify opposition. Uh, then Congress went into recess for a short time, but on September 29th, almost out of nowhere, Mitchell announced that the vote would be rescheduled for 4 p.m. the following day.
well, thankfully enough time had passed, already alerted to the radical United Nations agenda behind the treaty, opposing senators showed up with these large maps of land confiscations, property rights infringements, agricultural controls, and the overall radical environmental agenda. All of this displayed for everyone in the room to see details which were not supposed to be revealed until after the treaty was signed in general. Senator Kay Bailey Hutchinson, a Republican of Texas, led the condemnation of this foolishness of signing a treaty before its details were even supposed to be known. On the floor of the Senate, she said the following, quote, under the treaty, a conference of parties will meet after the treaty is in enforce to negotiate the details of the treaty. We need to know how the Senate, in fulfilling its constitutional responsibilities to concur in treaties, can review the provisions of a treaty that will not be written until the meeting of the conference of parties. And so she revealed the plot. She said the following, uh, quote, I am especially concerned about the effect of the treaty on private property rights in my state and throughout America. Private property is constitutionally protected, yet one of the draft protocols to this treaty proposes, quote, an increase in the area and connectivity of habitat it envisions buffer zones and corridors connecting habitat areas where human use will be severely limited. Are we going to agree to a treaty that would require the U.S. government to condemn property for wildlife highways? Are we planning to pay for this property? One group, the Maine Conservation Rights Institute, has prepared maps of what this would mean. I don't know if they're accurate yet, but that's my point. Neither do the proponents of this treaty. This biodiversity treaty could preempt the decisions of local, state, and federal lawmakers for use of our natural resources. The details that are left for negotiation could subject every wetlands permit, building permit, waste disposal permit, and incidental taking permit to international review. We would be subjecting property owners to international review, which would be yet another step in the already egregious bureaucratic processes just to have the very basic permits necessary for the use of their own private property. Along with several others, Senator Wallop, a Republican of Wyoming, immediately agreed and he said this on the Senate floor. I ask you, can the United States Senate in good faith give its consent to this treaty without having an opportunity to scrutinize the completed convention? The best advice we can give President Clinton right now is to wait until the Convention on Biological Diversity has been completed before asking for our consent. The last-minute outcry from these senators created enough awareness and opposition to table the consideration of the treaty indefinitely. To this day, it's never been voted on, and it remains like that. Now ask yourself what would have happened if this small group of concerned grassroots citizens had not sniffed out a genuine conspiracy, been able to alert their facts lists, and been able to convince a few key senators of the facts. Consider, because the nature of the treaty powers of the President and limited Senate, how narrowly we avoided having an international socialist tyranny completely alter the landscape of America. But the tabled status of the treaty in the U.S. meant it was also not quite definitely squelched. It could be resurrected at any time. And in fact, the Convention on Biodiversity's own website lists the parties to the treaty to this day, 193 of them. The United States is still listed as a signatory waiting to ratify before becoming a full party. They're still waiting on us. They're very patient. 
The only others, by the way, refusing to assent were the Vatican and the tiny mountain enclave of Andorra. In the meantime, the UN masquerades the plan under different names and renewed efforts. The Agenda 21 website confidently states the following. The full implementation of Agenda 21, the program for further implementation of Agenda 21, and the commitments to the Rio principles were strongly reaffirmed at the World Summit on Sustainable De Development held in Johannesburg, South Africa from 26 August to 4 September 2002. A toothier document appeared from the UN affiliate, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. First published in 1995, the third edition of the draft International Covenant on Environmental and Environment and Development arrived in 04. It aims to achieve environmental conservation and sustainable development by establishing integrated rights and obligations. As it says, uh, this is the further groundwork, very detailed, for the imposition of an international legal authority that transcends American sovereignty. Well, like the patient internationalists, American leftists, like former President Bill Clinton, were undeterred in their long-term goals by the defeat of the U.S. Treaty in the Senate. Clinton demonstrated another outlet by which the executive can, can wield its power to advance agendas even when opposed by the people and their legislature, and that's the executive order. Now, though Clinton would not affect the adoption of international law via treaty, he could still help the UN goal of influencing American governments. And he wasted no time on doing this. A full year before the treaty made it to the floor on the Senate, uh, Clinton signed Executive Order 12852, establishing the, quote, President's Council on Sustainable Development. This council was to advise the president on all matters of sustainable development and, quote, develop and recommend to the president a national sustainable development action strategy that will foster economic vitality. In 1997, Clinton revised the council's charter, whereas the original aimed merely at developing strategy, the new charter included advising on policy, disseminating educational material, and assessing progress no doubt the very strategy it had previously devised. The council was not only to advise on policy, but quote, to encourage and demonstrate implementation of sustainable development in real world settings. And also quote, report on successes and recommend strategies to replicate those successful projects throughout the United States. The new policy bulldog was created, funded, and maintained without any input from Congress or the voice of the people. The Council's influence was intended to be comprehensive in scope, including local governments. I mean, after all, Agenda 21 said the greatest resistance comes at that level, and thus, quote, the participation and cooperation of local authorities will be a determining factor in fulfilling its objectives. Thus, the new council's job was to encompass national and local sustainable, sustainable development plans. The revised charter specified the following as one of the several official activities for the council. Again, quoting, the council should create and participate in projects that help forge partnerships among representatives of federal and state agencies, urban centers, suburban areas, and rural communities with the goal of solving in a comprehensive way local and regional sustainable development issues. 
What you're seeing here is the leftist, one-world government, top-down control version of the very project you've been involved in with me from the beginning. But instead of restoring America one county at a time, they're destroying one county at a time in America. Instead of cutting the size of government and returning local government to local responsibility, they're increasing government, imposing yet higher levels of it that is global, and coercing or seducing local governments to put their local citizens under the sovereignty of global agencies. One of the grassroots activists who's named Henry Lamb, who fought this from the beginning and still does, laments on the progress it had made already in November of 94. He said, quote, this vision of local governance leaves city councils, county commissions, soil conservation districts, regional water authorities, and state legislatures completely out of the environmental land use sustainable development picture. Never happen? Don't be so sure. It's already happening. Literally, thousands of private and municipal land use decisions have been blocked by federal regulations. Land use, and therefore resource use, is no longer within the authority of local or even state governments. Local planning commissions and local county commissions may go through these motions, but their deliberations are likely to center more on compliance with federal regulations than on what's best for their community. When decisions are reached at the local level, they are still subject to approval or reversible, or re reversal by the federal government. Local and state governments are further intimidated by the now common practice of withholding federal highway funds or education funds or Medicare funds or other funds until the local government falls into line with federal demand. The explosion of unfunded federal mandates in recent years has further weakened the effectiveness of state and local government. By demanding that local and state governments implement federal laws and regulations, the federal government has effectively usurped local government's authority and ability to pursue, pursue its community objectives. As the unfunded mandate trends continue, local and state governments are re reduced to little more than administrative units of the federal government. The transition to bioregional communal, if not tribal governance, is not going to happen by declaration. Treaty proponents already fear a backlash and they are much too smart to deliberately precipitate a rebellion. The goal is long-range and fully integrated into a comprehensive program designed to achieve the desired result. Maurice Strong has said the international framework must be in place by 2012. The biodiversity documents anticipate a transition period of 20 to 50 years. In 1999, Clinton signed Executive Order 13112, advancing the innocuous-sounding plan for combating invasive species. It was a backdoor ploy for advancing the sustainable development agenda throughout American governments. This seemingly obscure issue of invasive species, for some reason, required the institution of a national invasive species council. And while you might think that such a council would be uh, composed of scientists and biological experts, and perhaps it did some, it included and demanded compliance from the Secretary of State, Secretary of the Treasury, Secretary of Defense, Secretary of the Interior, the Secretary of Agriculture, Secretary of Commerce, Secretary of Transportation, and the Administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. Some, of course, of the biggest and most comprehensive bureaucracies in the federal government. Why? 
ostensibly for targeting invasive species within their respective jurisdictions, but in reality it was part of the Agenda 21 plan to increase federal control over every corner of American life. Sure enough, entire UN colloquies have been written on the use of invasive species as a means of advancing international law and Agenda 21 specifically. The trick was to find some obscure environmental issue for which the executive could corral so many important federal agencies to focus on that agenda. Now more recently, Barack Obama has implemented the same tactic, only on a broader scale, with Executive Order 13575, establishment of the White House Rural Council. Again, it touts good intentions. Enhance the federal government's effort to address the needs of rural America to better coordinate federal programs, maximize the impact of federal investment, to promote economic prosperity and quality of life in our rural communities. But again, there was a vast consolidation of agenda throughout federal agencies, this time including a much larger list. The departments of the Treasury, Defense, Justice, Interior, Commerce, Labor, Health and Human Services, Housing and Urban Development, Transportation, Energy, Education, Veterans Affairs, Homeland Security, EPA, FCC, Office of Management of, and Budget, Office of Science and Technology Policy, Office of National Drug Control Policy, Council of Economic Advisors, Domestic Policy Council, National Economic Council, Small Business Administration, Council on Environmental Quality, White House Office of Public Engagement and Intergovernmental Affairs, the White House Office of Cabinet Affairs, and just in case any had been left out, quote, other executive branch departments, agencies, and offices as the President or the Secretary of Agri Agriculture may, from time to time, designate. The new Council's scope of mission is just as broad. It shall coordinate and increase the affected effectiveness of federal engagement with rural stakeholders, including agricultural organizations, small business, education and training institutions, health care providers, telecommunications, service providers, research and land-grant institutions, law enforcement, state, local and tribal governments, and non-governmental organizations regarding the needs of rural America. In other words, the executive branch, via its own fiat, now aims to have direct influence over all these areas of private life, business, law, and police at the local level. And this was accomplished without legislation, without congressional approval or scrutiny, purely by the whim of the executive himself. Now these abuses of power illustrate the problem William Sims mentioned long ago, which we noted earlier. Without clear definitions of the power and laws with the pre which the president must take care to execute, he is broadly at liberty to define his own, uh, his own laws according to his own agenda or another's. Now keep in mind, we've only touched on a tiny few executive orders here. There have been many. The total number we don't even know because the government didn't even start counting them until 1907, although it did number retroactively from 1862. Still, the consecutively numbered orders stand currently at over 13,600. FDR himself was the king, signing over 3,700 of them. Only one other modern president's even over 500, so that gives you uh, a sense. But just consider the fact that presidents have signed 13,600 different interpretations or applications of their power that are not explicitly stated in the Constitution. 
Okay, there have been 38 different presidents in office since 1862. This means that a mere 38 men have been allowed to circumvent the constitutional legislative process 13,600 times, an average of about 360 abuses per president. Granted, they're not all actual abuses. Some of them are powers already conceded to the president. Some of them are simply frivolous. But some of these orders have been more important than others. In 1952, one of Eisenhower's orders would have seized control of all steel mills in the country, and the Supreme Court found this disturbing enough to review and shot it down. But in recent times, this type of check on the presidential power is very rare. It's the exception to the rule. It has only occurred twice. In 1999, Bill Clinton essentially waged the entire war on Kosovo entirely by executive orders without congressional declaration of war. In Order 13088, Clinton declared the Civil War in Kosovo an un unusual and extraordinary threat to national security and foreign policy of the United States, and thus a, quote, national emergency. Leveraging previous acts of Congress, which were allegedly designed to prevent open-ended abuse of emergency powers, Clinton empowered himself to seize assets, to block property, to prohibit trade with then Yugoslavia. When military action was inevitable to fulfill that agenda, Clinton shot first and asked questions later. Actually, he never asked at all. He shot first and then he made requisite demands later. Between March 24th and April 7th of 99, Clinton simply informed Congress multiple times that he was sending troops to the region and supporting the NATO effort. On April 13th, he signed an executive order declaring Yugoslavia and its airspace a, quote, combat zone by referencing an obscure section of IRS tax code. The particular section in view is now U.S. code. It essentially provides a tax break for soldiers serving in undeclared wars, including serving in, uh, quote, combat zones, which the section defines as any area which the President of the United States by executive order designates. For the purposes of this section or corresponding provisions of prior income tax laws as an area in which armed forces of the United States are or have after June 24, 1950, engaged in combat. More importantly, the order retrodated the commencement of those combat activities back to March 24, 1999, the date the NATO bombings had begun, full three weeks prior to the order. On April 27th, Clinton signed another executive order ordering reserve forces to active duty. Now, Congress was especially suspect while Clinton effectively steamrolled them. On April 28th, the House shot down a declaration of war overwhelmingly and then appeared to oppose the war even further when it passed uh, a law forbidding the use of ground troops. But there's a certain amount of deceptive PR detectable in these moves. The bill, which passed suspiciously, neglected uh, also to forbid the use of troops in general, only expressly mentioning ground troops, and it also neglected aircraft. Uh, then, not even a month later, the House passed a Supplemental Appropriations Act giving direct approval to the war by approving billions of dollars to pay for it. Uh, even after the NATO air campaign was officially over, June 11th and 12th of 99, Clinton continued to tout the national emergency that he had declared. In fact, in the final days of his presidency, he moved to lift and modify some of the measures taken against Yugoslavia and yet still referred officially to, quote, the continuing threat 
and national emergency decreed previously. The order remained effectual until George W. Bush finally revoked it in 2003, and yet Bush's executive order referred to yet another national emergency described in yet another executive order from two years earlier, and this new one replaced and amended the old one, and thus continued. Uh, Bush also declared a national emergency on September 14th, 2001, just after 9-11 attacks for, previous, for obvious reasons. Now this is just the tip of the iceberg. It turns out that wars and national emergencies are the real powers behind executive tyranny, and they have been used widely since at least the Civil War to allow the president to circumvent Congress. Now we observed earlier in our talk on war how the warfare state and welfare state have this symbiotic relationship. In modern American history, the tie that binds these unholy partners until death do them part has been emergency powers. Assumedly an extreme measure for wartime only, modern presidents have increasingly relied on declarations of emergency in order to exercise vast powers domestically and during peacetime. You probably don't realize it, but you have lived prob probably the entirety of your life under national emergency. You almost certainly have if you were born after 1933. In that year, President Roosevelt transformed the United States into a peacetime executive tyranny. We've mentioned FDR's first inaugural address on a couple of occasions, noting how the president applied the language of warfare to solving a peacetime problem. It was no mere metaphor, as he clearly said he wanted broad executive power to wage a war against the emergency. The solution would come by treating the tasks as we would treat the emergency of a war, he said. He used the word emergency four times in that address to describe the American scene. It was no coincidence. He gave that speech on March 4, 1933. Five days later, he declared a national emergency, which gave the executive near total control over American life, again in peacetime. In 73, Congress took temporary interest in the subject of emergency powers, long enough at least to discover their history in a Senate study and to pass an act purporting to limit those powers. The act, as we shall see, has done nothing but formally codify and regular, regularize them. That 1973 study begins by saying, since March 9th of 1933, the United States has been in a state of declared national emergency. In fact, there are now in effect four presidential proclaimed states of national emergency, in addition to the national emergency declared by President Roosevelt in 1933, there are also the national emergency proclaimed by President Truman on December 16th of 1950 during the Korean conflict, and the states of national emergency declared by President Nixon on March 23rd, 1970 and August 15th, 1971. Four separate national emergencies sounds crazy, but believe it or not, those were the good old days. Today it's difficult to get an accurate account of all the outstanding national emergencies. The latest revised edition from 2007 of a Congressional Research Service report on national emergency powers lists 42 declared national emergencies just between 1976 and August of 2007. Only 22 of these have been rescinded, which leaves about 20 in effect. We know Obama's added several on top of those, so the powers given to the executive under these declarations are broad and numerous.
The congressional studies reveal the following, quote, Under the powers delegated by these statutes, the president may seize property, organize and control the means of production, seize commodities, assign military forces abroad, institute martial law, seize and control all transportation and communications, regulate the operation of private enterprise, restrict travel, and, and in a plethora of particular ways control the lives of all American citizens. There are various standby laws that convey special emergency powers once the president formally declares a national emergency, uh, activating them. In 1973, a Senate special committee studying emergency powers published a compilation identifying some 470 provisions of federal law delegating to the executive extraordinary authority in time of national emergency. The vast majority of them are, are of the standby kind, dormant until activated by the president. Uh, that 1973 report led eventually to the National Emergencies Act signed into law three years later. The following year saw sister legislation called the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. These acts placed some light checks upon the executive power, but they really did little more than codify the practice of executive rule via national emergency into statute law. And thus it received a legal sanction. And the end result has been a vast increase in the practice rather than Congress curtailing it. After all the dangerous powers listed and exposed by the 1973 report, these acts were preposterously weak in the effect they have had. One is tempted to say that they were mere smoke screens. We do know that the achievement of these vast powers on behalf of the presidency involved considerable behind closed doors type work. This came on the part of government officials and non-government collaborators, namely the Rockefeller-funded Spellman Fund. One of the main legal obstacles in the way of FDR in 33 was a strong belief remaining among the people in states' rights, residual especially in the southern and western states. Any open move on behalf of the president would have caused widespread opposition among the people and likewise uh, would have stalled the nationalistic agenda. So the elites moved very quietly and stealthily. Remember that inaugural address was March 4th of 33. Well, immediately the day after, a coordinated effort began to get every state governor essentially to effect a state-level emergency power grab in preparation for handing that power then over to FDR. A telegram was received by Kansas government Landon stating, quote, we respectfully submit to your consideration that the dire need of the hour calls for national unity in support of our president, a unity even more complete and unselfish than that necessary in war. Prompt and decisive action of a national scope in several directions is necessary to prevent economic collapse throughout the land. The ordinary preparations of government that prevail and are suitable in time of prosperity with normal conditions may be too slow to meet adequately this dangerous emergency and stem the, de the danger of economic avalanche carrying all before it. We, a coalition of different groups and political and religious faiths, respectfully request that you join the other governors of our country in the issuance of a proclamation on Wednesday, March 8th, in the support of the President of the United States. 
That message was signed by a variety of leaders with national profiles. Richard Byrd, who was a celebrity naval officer and explorer, Mrs. Calvin Coolidge, Nicholas Murray Butler, president of Columbia University, and cha uh, chair of the Kit Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. H.G. Harriman, who was president of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the Reverend Harry Emerson Fosdick, Walter Lippmann, plus several labor and farm leaders, as well as several holdouts from Wilson's war state. A national governor's meeting was called in D.C. Those who could not attend uh, personally got the telegram. Landon responded willingly. Merely a few days later, a new telegram announced, quote, complete success of program of simultaneous proclamations by all governors of states. Plans being made ready for reading your proclamation in every church in your state. Indeed, it was successful. Following the proclamations, legislation was rammed through the state legislatures. In Colorado, for example, the governor made such a proclamation on August 2nd of 33. Two weeks later, the legislature gave the governor all the power he asked for. This new law so closely paralleled the governor's requests that the president's design uh, and the president's designs that with such brief time it's very likely they were given pre-prepared copies from which to work. But the power grab was unprecedented and not without opposition, however futile. Uh, in, in review of these measures, which apparently not legally decisive, the Colorado Supreme Court was appalled. The measures were profoundly unconstitutional. They said, quote, we venture the assertion that no man able to read and understand ordinary English, however otherwise educated or uneducated, wise or foolish, would question for a moment that this bill was a plain violation of the state constitutional prohibition against contracting state debts for other than defense. It continued, if the people's thou shalt not can be brushed aside by the simple ipso dixit of the public servants thus bound, the mandate is impotent. Such a construction, once adopted, breaks the barrier, and future legislatures, protected by precedent, might pile up mountains of debt on future generations, resulting in inevitable impoverishment or ruthless repudiation. It didn't matter. The state governors persuaded the state legislatures and the president got his broad executive power to wage a war against the emergency. Almost immediately, the president's national planning board began issuing circulars to the states. The fifth of these letters on December 11th of 1933 called for the creation of state planning boards. These would oversee the implementation of federal guidelines for public works, land use planning, zoning, use of rural lands, transportation, agriculture, housing, population redistribution. Yes, that's the government telling you that you have to leave your property and move where they tell you, Trail of Tears style. Conservation, water resources, recreation, fiscal programming, and more. The circular itself stated, quote, a full-fledged state planning project will eventually include all of these items and others as well. A later letter from Kansas Governor Landon to the Chancellor of the University of Kansas reveals it was not all purely political. As we've seen so many times in this study, particularly with education and banking and tariffs, money and war, there are corporate and religious ideological forces at work as well. 
Landon says in his letter, quote, we are of course dependent on the National Resources Board and the Spellman Fund for the continuance of effective work. Well, the Spellman Fund was a Rockefeller oil endowment directed by Beardsley Rummel, who along with Elihu Root probably is among the most influential man you've never heard of. He was a psychologist of the behaviorist school, a leader of the University of Chicago, a Macy's executive, and after serving as director of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, became the Ben Bernanke of his day and chaired it. In 1942, he invented the income tax withholding so that average people would not feel the pain of writing a single large year-end check to the government. Taxing in small increments, that is, creates less resistance and allows the government, number one, to take more money in the long run, and number two, to bank and earn interest on that money while they collect it in the meantime. Meanwhile, the history of the progressive era, as we saw, was one of empire and corporate growth, and Rockefeller was the emperor, uh, uh, at least one of them, if not the only one. After a coal mine strike at Colorado involving workers from one of Rockefeller's mines led to a massacre of miners courtesy of the National Guard, we can just imagine that Sherman would be proud, Rockefeller took the national lead in calling for increased employee benefits and protections and wage protections and representation. The so-called Colorado Plan became something of a blueprint for central planning, industrial relations, as Rockefeller funded programs in several major universities throughout the nation. Uh, I'd like to read you a quotation from some historians who go over this practice. Quote, Princeton, Yale, Harvard, and Columbia were heavily funded by John D. Rockefeller, Jr., but the political science department at the University of Chicago, under the leadership of Charles Merriam and Beardsley Rummel, became the headquarters for the new science of industrial relations. Whether the increased cost of providing for laborers human weaknesses would be offset by increased profits turns out to be immaterial. If government could provide these benefits at no cost to the corporations, any increased productivity would be a windfall profit for the corporate owners. It was this goal that the Rockefeller interests pursued through their foundations, university funding, and government collaborations, and that they ultimately achieved in 1933. The only problem to be overcome was the peacetime constitutional limitations on government to create money and tax and spend at will. President Roosevelt, the Congress, and the state solved this problem on March 9th of 33 by declaring a state of national emergency, thereby eliminating prior constitutional restraints. The first hundred days of the Roosevelt administration were by and large no more than an implementation of the Rockefeller Colorado Plan by the national government in cooperation with state and local governments, with purported constitutional authority under a state of declared national emergency that previously had been assumed to apply only in wartime. Indeed, one Rockefeller-funded advisor, FDR, briefed him nearly a year before his presidency, stating for a fact that corporations were already in control. He said, quote, 65% of American industry is owned and operated by about 600 corporations. He would go on to praise this as an opportunity to advance towards Soviet-style socialism, 
quote, at the present rate of the trend, the American and Russian systems will look very much alike within a comparatively short period, say 20 years. For there is no great difference between having all industry run by a committee of commissars and by a small group of directors. This is, uh, this was advised to be made part of FDR's campaign that the corporate state should be set up, quote, uh, monopolies at will and should include power to, ref to require uniform prices to control security issues and to control further consolidation. On the same day he declared the national emergency, the Emergency Banking Act gave FDR total control of national finance. He declared a bank holiday and forbid redemption of paper for gold. A month later, he confiscated the, nation, the nation's gold coins from all private individuals at the set price of $20.67 an ounce. A year later, he declared, on a whim, the price to be $35 an ounce, which effectively inflated the money supply by 70%, or decreased the nation's debt burden by that amount, depending on how you look at it. Out of this same emergency atmosphere came the Emergency National Industry Recovery Act, which exempted corporations from antitrust and anti-monopoly laws. A Central National Resources Board, the Homeowners Loan Act, the Emergency Relief Act, the Social Security Act, and the Emergency Agricultural Adjustment Act, which placed national controls on farms, prices, etc. A similar spirit has prevailed ever since. What President Clinton did in Kosovo via executive orders and declared national emergencies was already long since the norm for advancing central planning and political agendas. Presidents today regularly, regularly use emergency powers in both war and peace to expedite agendas under the guise of governing effectively national security, many other justifications. While there certainly is no limit to the tyranny of an executive who has both the ambition and the opportunity, there's enough here to show how a once freer America has been entirely subdued. This has come primarily through three key executive powers, the treaty-making power in this country, the abuse of executive orders, and the ascendancy of government by emergency. And we have seen how the latter of these has been the main catalyst for executive tyranny, especially in more recent times, and also as it unleashes the greater potential for the abuse of ex executive orders. The greatest irony of all here is probably that of all tyrannies and abuses, Americans are most complacent with this one being abused. This may not be true considering the allure of public schooling and welfare checks, but consider for a moment how broadly these executive excesses have been indulged by both Republican and Democrat administrations in recent times. And in either instance, the partisans of either party praise the abuses of their party and condemn those of the opponents. But the message is clear. We will tolerate executive tyranny as long as our guy gets to stick it to the other guys. Understandably, the two major political parties in this nation have become merely two expressions of big government executive tyranny. The one says, give us protections for social welfare programs. The other says, give us protection for corporate banks and big business. In short, there seems to be no escape from this game of big spending and massive debts. It only seems to be a matter of who gets to profit on the front end. But there is an alternative worldview. 
while change in the executive functions of our governments, especially at the federal level, is definitely a long way off, barring some major collapse and catastrophe. There are still some goals at which we can aim, and we will discuss those goals in the final section.